Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show and uh, before we get into this week's guest, just want to tell you that the new Inside the Academy documentary and Let is now live on the Inside the Academy YouTube channel. This is the documentary series I've been making, visiting some of the best academies in the world. I'm really privileged that and Let agreed to let us come in and reveal all their secrets and hints and tips about player development and show us what makes them one of the best academies in world football. So follow the link in the bio or go to the Inside the Academy YouTube channel to check out the new Inside the Academy doc at Andlet. But now into uh, our guest, the show, and uh, look, top guest this week, Chris Doherty. Chris is uh, the uh, sporting director at Honved in Budapest, but really interesting uh, career which is, uh, you know, goes through academy football. He worked for the Scot- Scottish FA. He spent some time in Croatia and China. Uh, so really interesting career career path, but also just like a top, top guy and really intelligent. Uh, talks about his research and various factors in terms of, you know, what he brings to the table. But this was a really enthralling chat. And you can tell, actually, because we go on for a bit longer because he he's got so much uh, interesting, you know, coaching and expertise and uh, talking about his, his his current roles in that sporting development role as well is really fascinating so really privileged Chris came onto the show he's, he's top 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 practitioner I know you're going to enjoy it and remember the uh, My Personal Football Coach virtual um, conference is out again make sure you know some of the best presenters in the world check that out as well but without further ado let's get into the show. So Chris Doherty welcome to the show. Thank you Saul pleasure to be here. Uh, can you give us a brief outline of your playing, coaching and you know, football industry experience up to this point? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, just apologise. I've got a little bit of a cold, so if I have to cough or anything then. Um, but right. yeah, no, no worries. So I, I, started, I played when I was a child, like everybody else, I guess, who's involved in this career. I uh, wasn't good enough to become professional. 16 years old, I started doing coaching qualifications. Um, I was PE was my favourite subject at school. So even the theory side, I quite liked. So I got into coaching. Um, enjoyed it, just volunteering with the local teams, the school teams, etc. Um, from there, I went to university to study sports science and then continued coaching. Um, done quite well with the with a local <laughs> team, professional teams, community program. Got into the academy from there, and became a became a head coach at academy level. Then from there, I started to work with the Scottish Football Association as a youth coach in the performance school program. Um, worked with the national youth teams also for for some time. And then from there, I went on to, to first-team football and travelled around. I've been in, I've been in China, uh, Croatia, Russia, and now in Hungary. So, yeah, I mean, just tell us about that. First, you talked about football, but, I mean, tell us, you're quite specific. You've been working as a technical director and, and consulting in that area. Just, just outline that for us and what clubs you've been Yeah, so, so basically, so, yeah, so, as I mentioned previously, I was, I was a coach uh, in youth football for a long time, and oh, we just worked our way up the age groups. And then from there... From there, the next step I went to China was a head of coaching position. So it was still in youth development, but it was I was a little bit more management based and it was more strategic based. So um, I went there with with the aim to do the technical side, which was putting in the curriculums, the methodology, etc., and really working with the coaches on the training sessions because I was really interested in the long term plan of player development. But what came from that was having to manage people, manage staff, and 
that was the first experience I had in terms of um, creating a whole strategy, not only on the football side and having to, to work towards that. Um, during my time in China as well, I had a chance to work with a, a top executive coach. He works with some of the richest people in China. He was the, C, the, the CFO of one of the biggest companies in the world. And um, luckily, because it was a government project, he, he had the chance to speak to me about management. So that was I started to go a little bit into another part of football. Uh, after that, I then went to the, the pandemic hit. Um, I left China. Uh, I had the chance to go to Croatia to Hajduk Split, where I, I then went into work with the first team at that point, and the head coach left, Igor Tudor, he went to Juventus. So then a new head coach came in and I had a good relationship with the sport director. And I think there was a little bit of concern about, you know, whether I would give information, etc. So I was I was excluded a little bit with the new coaching staff from discussions on the first team. So what ended up happening was the sport director brought me closer to him to work with him. So again, unintentionally, I started to get more involved in the, the overall management side, for example, whether it was scouting players, whether it was um, looking at the, you know, how the academy links to the first team. So there's many aspects to the role which I started to learn in Croatia. And of course, they are, you know, one of the best in the world at developing young players and then also selling them on. Um, so I learned a lot about that there. And then from there, uh, I came back to Scotland. I worked at Dundee United last season. Uh, we, we, had a, we had a decent season, qualified for Europe. My role there was... Um, we had a sporting director who was used to be an agent, so he was more focused on the negotiation and, <laughs> and that side of things, uh, not not the scouting players or the technical side. So I was I was somewhat of a, a middle person between the head coach and the first team staff, and also um, the management side. Whether that would be identifying what type of players, what profiles we need, or week by week, I also worked with the first team on the tactical side, how we should play, etc., and also with academy on the game model. So I was kind of like a technical director role would be in Europe, um, linking everything throughout. Uh, and then I went to Russia, had the chance to become a sporting director of a club there. Um, it was a new club, three years old, ambitious project, similar, I would say, to like a Red Bull type project with a wealthy owner. He actually bought the best academy in Russia, which Roman Abramovich had funded. So I was walking into a project with some good potential. Um, and the sporting director, wrote their role there was all encompassing. Um, and after six months, the war started. So uh, I left because of that. And then this opportunity came up in, in uh, Budapest Honved, which is historically one of the biggest teams in, in Hungary. Not been doing too well the last few years, but I think um, I'm still quite young, 31, and have the chance to, to do this type of role at this type of club is it's an honour and a privilege. So now you're sporting director now at Humbert, are you? Yes, sporting director. Wow, interesting. Really interesting journey. Like so still quite young. Um, so tell us about the, your first coaching days in academy football. What, what clubs were you working at? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, probably even my most enjoyable time was at the beginning, uh, coaching young players. Uh, I worked, first of all, just with, just with local schools. And then uh, I worked for Stenhouse Muir, which is a club in Scotland, small club. They're in the, the lower divisions. But at the time, they they had the best uh, community programme in the country. They, they were winning that award. So um, so I got involved in that. And uh, to be honest, I really hated some of the parts, like coaching the four or five-year-old kids, because mm. uh, I don't know if you've done that, Saul. But they, yeah, many times. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're much harder to manage than first team players. I can I can say that for sure. Um, but then sure? I, <laughs> had a, had the under 15s team as well, uh, community team, and it was just volunteering. The team typically had not done well over the last couple of years, and then we started to develop a couple of players, and um, also to the team started doing better. So then a job came up in the academy, which at the time, even though they were a small club. The academy was one of the top 10 in Scotland by criteria, which meant they played against Celtic Rangers, etc. And therefore, I got the chance. To, I went into work with under-13s there. Um, and I think what happened from there was that 
Um, simultaneously, I was also at university and I was doing some performance analysis as part of my uh, pathway there. Um, I got recommended to go. It was with the women's A national squad. The, the video analyst um, couldn't make it for one tournament and they needed somebody. So the sports scientist from the women's national team worked at my university and he recommended me. So um, basically, I was coaching in the academy under 13s. We also started to do quite well in that period. There was a few players there who were selected for the Scottish FA Elite Performance Programme and then also became known to the Scottish FA, I guess, through the other route. And from that, I then got invited to work in the, the Performance School Programme, which was a, a national programme where essentially the, the best kids in the country go to one of um, seven regional schools and we would work with them every day. And that was that was a really huge developmental experience for me because I, I think probably genetically, just watching the game... I tend to analyse more the big picture, the tactical side, where the space is, et cetera, patterns. Um, but working the performance school, there wasn't a team. The players, you could have players from Rangers Academy or from Hearts Academy. And so we, we, were not, we were not doing team sessions as such or playing games. We were working with individual players every day and in small group uh, scenarios. So that really helped me to understand player development as opposed to team development. And I think a lot of academy coaches who, if they don't have the, have a good education, they grow up working with the team every mm. day when, when they're at the academy. And what it really taught me was that it's much more powerful and valuable to focus on individuals and small groups. And that's something that I still take with me. Uh, that's today. a really interesting point there. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you say, the by fallback anyway, if you're an academy coach, I remember in academy football, I mean, how do you gauge the success? Often people gauge success in how the team is playing or performing on the weekend, not necessarily how the individuals are um, developing. I had this conversation the other day because I was uh, one of my clients is at a, as a, at a very you know, big club in Lo in London under twelve, and the, and the, the dad said all session they're working on trying to win the ball back, you know, ball recovery and stuff like that. And I just thought, what a strange thing to be working with eleven year old kids with, you know, spending a whole session doing that, and, you know, and why don't we, you know, why don't you work on individual possession more and work on just possession tactics? I mean, listen, it's you know being a bit judgmental and maybe I'm a bit of an idealist, but I mean that's reality. Is it maybe? I mean, coming back to your situation, maybe you were blessed at the fact that you didn't have a team, so you didn't have that burden. And I'm, I'm going to well, often on. I, I'm, I'm sometimes lucky as well when I go into clubs to work with players. I'm working. I'm the individual specialist. I don't necessarily care about the team performance. I only care about the individual performance. So I'm in the same sort of space as you were, maybe. Yes, and absolutely. But what one challenge you could find, for example, <clears throat> when I worked with the Scottish FA, that we would work with these kids and we would see them for what for the qualities they had on that small group and technical basis. Then we'd maybe go to their, their academy team, which would try and play a different way at the weekend, and it wouldn't suit that maybe smaller, more technical player. And maybe the player would get released or they would... And this is a player that's been selected as one of the most talented players in the country. And then you see that things don't always align. So that's sometimes where it's difficult because I agree with you. Um, what's most important is the individual player and the journey. And that's something I try and put in now. And for example, the role I'm doing now mm. into the academy. But I, I can give you the best example. I know I know that you've interviewed, for example, um, Dino Zagreb staff on here before. And I think Romeo Jozak was, was on one yeah. of your... Um, so I, I had the chance to go to Dinamo, I think, around nine eight or nine years ago, the first time. I've been there a couple of times and had a long association with Croatian football. And I don't, I don't think they mentioned it on the podcast, but one of the things which was very interesting, in Zagreb, the school system is oversubscribed. So that means there's not enough spaces in the school building for all the kids who need to go to school. So what they have to do is half of the kids have to go to school in the morning and half <clears throat> go to school in the afternoon. So what yeah. that meant for, for the academy football was that you only have half of your players in the morning and half in the afternoon. So you've got two sessions, which are basically half of your squad each. 
So that and and they might organise, for example, one evening per week before the game, where you can work on your shape, etc. Which is, of course, I think that's also good to do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but by by nature, organically, those coaches were forced to work on small group and individual development. And you know, I, I think I think it's I think it would philosophically be their ideal way anyway. But it would also be philosophically my idea if I was an academy director. But you know, individual coaches might. They might go away from that a little bit and work with the team, so, but but actually being forced to work with the players. For example, then when I worked with Hajduk Split, I went to the under-19s game. Um, Hajduk won 2-0 and Hajduk won the under-19 championship against Dinamo Zagreb. Um, but that the reason I think the, the under-19s coach at Hajduk was, was tactically good. They had rotations, they had movements, and the players had a half second more on the ball in every situation because of the cohesion of the team. But the two best individuals on the, on the field were at Dinamo Zagreb. <laughs> You know, players that would just take the ball and dribble three players. And I mean, you can't. So if I was a sport director, those are the players I'm calling up to the first team squad. I'm I'm not, as a sport director, looking at how the team plays in the academy because I can't call the team up and put the team, you know, I can't put 11 players in. So I'm only looking for the one or two that, that is ready to progress. Hi, guys. Hope you're enjoying the show. Just to remind you that the My Personal Football Coach virtual conference is now live. 14 presentations for some of the best player developers in world football. Check out the information in the bio uh, and it's downloadable. You watch, you can keep the presentations for a lifetime. But like I said, some of the best player developers and a lot of the top guests we've had over the years on the sh- on the show and a, and a unique discount, 20% discount code for you guys only. Discount code is podcast VC, V for virtual, C for conference, podcast VC gives you 20% off. But like I say, these are the Carlin Globetrotters of player developers uh, so go and check it out now. But without further ado, just get back into the show. Yeah, I mean, and that's the true gauge of your academy. He's got the best players. I remember David Dodds very early on in my career at Tottenham. David, who was it, went to Reading and now I think he's at Arsenal doing some stuff in the recruitment. But he just said, like, you know, you've got to look who's got the best five players on the pitch. Do you know what I mean? So you can play all the pretty football you like, but I mean, if you haven't got the individuals, that's you know, and that's what academy football is about. You know, whatever club you are, don't care. You know, you're someone who's going to either get into the first team or you know, an asset you can sell, right? So I mean, that's the real core thing. So I suppose, like you know, you in your management position, you have the bigger picture. You've got to then try and convince the you know the academy coaches and stuff to really work more or you know focus their eye more on that, right? Well, one hundred percent. But you know, you know, so and you know this as well because you've spoke to so many people and I've listened to a lot of the the podcast, which was you know, there's a lot of great content, but. For example, Dinamo Zagreb and Hajduk Split, you have to win in the academy. All oh, yeah. In Spain, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, you have to win. In South America, is even, you know, maybe beyond crazy in terms of the, the winning culture at the youngest ages, um, even even the, the five, six, seven-year-old kids. <laughs> so, so I think, for example, if I speak to an academy coach and they tell me, okay, individual development, but if we don't win, then maybe we get pressure because we're a big club or so on. Well, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that the team can lose 5-0. And have a, and have good individual players. No, the fact is that by developing individual players better, we should be more competitive in the games. So I, I think that in youth football, that's usually the case. When you ha- well, even in adult yeah. football, when you when you've got the best players, yeah. you're more likely to win the game. So I think overall, it's still the same. We still want to be successful in the academy. Not that winning games is a priority, but it, but it it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can also be yeah. successful by having the, the most talented players. Yeah, exactly. And kids want to win anyway. And like, yeah, I was at uh, Andalette the other day, John Kinderman's, you know, we made the Inside the Academy dot there. So he said, he said, we're convinced that, you know, the more better players you have, the better teams you're going to have. So, exactly. I mean, that's, I suppose that's the logic you got to get there. So anyway, get a bit off. Tell me about that performance program in Scotland. Really interesting, actually. How's that work in practice? You know, that's, I could never get ahead around that in our English Academy heads on that. Players have been, you know, coming together away from academies and going somewhere else and coming, you know, 
because you know, it's, it's quite unique, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we had a Dutch performance director at the time, Mark Vauter, who brought in the idea. I think in Europe, it had happened in a couple of, I, I mean, obviously England, uh, you know, had their own school at, at one time. So the, the, the concept itself was not new. Uh, we didn't do it as a national centre. So we done it as seven regional centres. So that meant that the children didn't board at the school. They, they, they basically attended a school in their geographic proximity. And there's pros and cons to that, to be honest. Um, I can touch on that maybe in a second. So generally, so there were seven schools. So you would scout the players under 11s, under 12s in your region at the academies. It could also be boys club because, because I think we were also aware that the academies didn't always pick up every single talented young player. They may miss one yeah. technically gifted player. So we would also take some players from boys club who later would, would go academy. Um, and yeah, it, it was sometimes a situation of conflict with the clubs, to be honest. The, the programme's still running. I'm not sure exactly how that plays so, out now. So, so what age do they come into the programme? They come into the programme. So so high school in Scotland starts age 12, so under 13. So they'll, so under they'll, 13. Go, to, they'll go to school at this, this performance centre run by they'll the Scottish go, FA? Yeah, so they'll go to school there. Uh, we would also organise transport for kids who need help to get there, etc. Where Where um, is it? So as I said, there's, there's seven regional centres, so depending right. on where you're born. So I went yeah. to the one in the central region. Okay. Um, so, for example, if you're born in Glasgow, there's, there was a school in Glasgow, yeah, etc. Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh is a different school. So, for example, Billy Gilmore is probably the most famous example who came through the school programme. Um, Nathan Patterson, there's, there's a couple more who... Uh, Scott Banks at Crystal Palace, I believe. I think it may be on loan this season. So, so. so, so they, they, they come to the school, they train every day with you guys, and then they go to the academy in the evening as well. Yeah, so three nights per week, they would train with their academy. But what you have to, what you have to think about, Saul, is that Academy football in Scotland, they were only training three nights per week before that and period. So if you look at Europe, where, where the kids are training more often and more frequently, then the, the, the Scottish teams didn't want to invest anymore in the academies. And the, the coaches anyways were paid maybe, you know, very, very little over the year. And they had full-time jobs and they would come and basically almost volunteer for expenses to three nights per week, put on a session for the kids. So what the SFA was thinking is, well, if the, if the clubs are not going to do more, the kids need more contact time with the ball because we're behind other countries. So mm -hmm. the only option we have is to have our own programme and to do it that way. So the focus for us was, was more on individual development, getting them into the school every day, working with the players themselves. And then the three, three nights per week, they still trained with their academy team. They still played at the weekend. Of course, there is sometimes conflict between, you know, what the academy thinks the player should do, what you think they should do. If the player gets injured, there's sometimes a blame game can come onto that as well. And there's many, many things which made it um, challenging. At the same time, definitely it did improve, I think, the technical level of the young Scottish players. And I think you can see that the last two, three years, some of the young players now playing England, Syria, et cetera, 16, 17, mm. 18, 19 years old. And um, there's a better level coming through, although there's obviously still work to do. Well, what, so they, how often would they train at the school? Every day. So they train every day and then three, so they're getting five sessions, additional sessions a week. That's a lot of contact time, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So of course, of course, there's an onus on you to make sure you don't overload them physically. And I think that's something that we, we didn't have really the resources or the expertise because there was no um, real monitoring. And, and as you know, going through that growth spurt uh, period as well, because 12 to 16, so these kids would be four years with us. Mm. So 12 to 16 years old, they're there. But that's a very sensitive age. And I think, I think in hindsight, if I could um, go back and create that program from scratch, I would maybe pay some attention to that periodization because that's maybe something, for example, if it was eight to 12 was a school program, you, there's probably no negatives because more touches, more football, mm. you know, the body can the body can play almost all day. But yeah. at the 12 to 16 age, you know, growth spurt related injuries, et cetera, were, were something to consider. 
Um, but generally, more contact time with the ball was good. The other thing I would say that more contact time younger has a benefit on two other areas, which I think we needed in Scotland. Coordination of our players was not always good. Movement fundamentals was not always good. After the age of 12, very difficult to to, to affect those things. Secondly, te technique, technical ability. The players who came to the school programme at age 12, no matter what we did, the ones who had good technique left with good technique. Other players with average technique could still become players with you know right attitude, learning the game, being mm. professional, all the things. But I never saw a player come in with poor technique age 12 and after four years of training every day they have good technique at 16 so I think you know those golden ages that people speak about I think that that that's something where if you were asking me in Scotland now we need to fix a little bit more what happens at even younger younger age groups interesting interesting and what about yourself your own development as a coach I mean talk about your coaching philosophy what sort of things you're delivering what you know what who inspired you what inspired you what do your sessions look like at that time well at that time um, so we had a Dutch performance director as I mentioned and I, I was only in my early 20s <clears throat> we had the opportunity to work in this programme, so very fortunate. Um, in Scotland, historically, it was not so easy for young guys who had not been famous players to break into the game. So um, to be full-time in, in the programme was great. Uh, and I think the, the Dutch performance director who came in wanted that, type, that, that new generation of ideas and people. And so at the time we were doing, with his philosophy, there was basically always some technical work to start uh, the session whether that be some ball mastery related, maybe with the younger ones, or maybe some a passing exercise or something like that. Um, that would be basically your warm-up. And then you would go into, it was always kind of micro games, as we would call it, um, small parts of the game, you know, cutouts of a situation that would happen. And we would work on that in small situations, etc. cetera. Um, and, and obviously at that time, as you imagine, with a Dutch performance director, the national youth teams in Scotland had a 4-3-3 or 4 Every team was supposed to play, and there was clear profiles for each position. So in the performance school, we would also identify this player might be a you know a seven or an eleven or a nine, you know, in, in our national team identity. And we would start to prepare the player, some of those habits and behaviors that you might need if you're going to be a Scotland player in that system. And so so there was definitely some tactical related things, but more focusing on through the individual and small group lens. Um and we would always, always do these individual focus sessions. So, for example, I would go and watch a player in our school playing for his academy team at the weekend. So let's say on Sunday I went to watch, I would go and watch a player from, let's say, Rangers. Uh, and let's say that he is, let's say he's a number 8, 10 in a 4 3, three And maybe the player, um, he's not receiving, but his body open between the lines when he gets the ball and he's playing back into pressure. Or then I would go away and design a session. Now, that, that might be that I would work with that player one-to-one. -one, and the other coach at the school would take the group. Or it might be that, for example, we've worked with five or six players. I would put him in a situation where he's getting repetition of behaviours um, that I want to either correct or improve based on what I saw from him. But then he might receive with an open body and play the ball out to the wing and the wingers getting repetition of his crosses, etc. So we would create these. It might be a group drill, but with a focus on what each individual needs to work on. Interesting. As I said, it's about then you, you, uh, your next roles in China. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, yes. So, so how did that come about? Tell us about that experience and how that came about and what you exactly did. Yeah, so so I, so I had the chance. Um, I, I was in touch with, the, there was a former Manchester City coach, uh, Darren Bowman, who who worked out there at the time. And um, had the chance to go out there and work. Originally, I was I was like um, an assistant to him and then later kind of took over his position. And so, so my, role, my role was, he, he was the management figure at the time. Uh, he obviously very experienced, 12 years at City, etc. And... I was probably more, let's say, the methodology guy. So I, I would try and develop further the curriculum. I would, I would do coach education, um, whether that would be for for Chinese coaches or for in in house coaches, for example, British coaches. 
who would come out. And, and it was really to try and develop a strategy. How can we improve Chinese football? How can China win the World Cup? You know, I had to I had to try and look at those big picture questions because that was the the aim. Um, not not very easy to solve, uh, mm-hmm. I have to say, but that that was the aim. So on that side, I would look at things. For example, how do Chinese parents interact with them? How do Chinese teachers teach them? How do they learn others? Because in other sports, they are the best in the world. You know, gymnastics, table tennis, etc. So what makes them exceptionally good at that? And how can we transfer that to football? So that's on the large scale. And then on the micro scale, there would be things like, yeah, going and watching a coach's session, giving feedback on what to do, etc., etc. And so what was your conclusions? Why why can't China win the World Cup at the moment? Is, is it your fault that they haven't won it yet? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think yeah, I think... Certainly, I would, certainly I, I'm not talented enough to fix it. I, would, I think that would be fair. Um, look, what I realise in China is that it's a, there's a, it's a sociological project, first of all, because the culture of the game doesn't exist. So that, that's, the, that's the first thing. It is improving. But the main challenge you have is that parents want their, their kids to do, they want them to, to study almost all day. You mean they study a lot in school and then they come back, they've got a lot of homework and then they might have a tutor for mathematics and it's a very, a very structured and organised society. So kids don't play on the street. Free, free play doesn't exist. So, for example, things which in the UK people might, um, people might look at me aghast if I suggested. But in China, my conclusion was that the only way to succeed was the same way they do, for example, in gymnastics. You have to take the players very young, for example, four years old, and you have to take them into school programs, football schools, and you have to work with them every day on football, and you have to give them a high volume not high intensity, uh, that's a philosophical thing for me, a high volume of technical and repetitive work to really master the ball at the young ages and give them that coordination and, and motor skill element as well. Because there's no chance for the Chinese kid to go and figure things out on his own. It's not in the culture. So I know, I know for example, in the UK, if we said we're going to take four-year-old kids from the parents, put them in a boarding school, and we're going to train them every day in football. Yeah, I know what the response would be. Um, philosophically, my job wasn't to have a philosophy. My job was to find a solution. I'm not saying that if you have the football school programme and train them from a young age, that they will become world champions. But I know for sure if you don't do it, that, that they've got no chance because you need to do something at the younger ages to catch up. Um, and I think that that structured environment is what they're used to learning in. So if I was to give you, for example, if you're a teacher, or just a, a, an elementary school teacher in China, then the, the average ratio would be 50 children to one teacher in the class. Wow. So... How are you going to teach? You can't go around the class and ask everybody, what do you think about this? There's no time for, for opinion. So two plus two is four. Everybody repeats two plus two is four. Three multiplied by three is nine. Repeat it. You know, there, there's no, it's not a, it's not a discussion environment. It's a, this is, the, this is the facts. Repeat the facts, memorize the facts and answer them correctly on the test. So that's why, that's why Chinese are, you know, uh, and Asians typically, you know, if you look at, if you look at Asian Americans, disproportionately at Ivy League universities, there's much more Asian Americans than there is in the whole population at those top universities, typically studying subjects of logic, you know, whether that's mathematics, uh, the sciences, mm. um, accountancy, economics, etc. So th- these are logical based, rule based um, disciplines and, and their the learning style suits that. Obviously, creativity is something which is hard to develop in that type of environment. But, but the conclusion I reached was, if that was the problem with the football, then what I would expect to see would be that all the players are technically excellent because they, they do a lot of repetition of technique and they don't make good decisions or they're not creative. I never saw that at all. The players technically were not good enough. So that was the problem I had to solve in football. But I do think that Chinese players, for sure, they respond better to command-based um, learning, coaching styles. They respond better to um, structure. 
And if you give them not a lot, if you give them more freedom, it becomes chaos very quickly because they're not used to working in freedom. So mm-hmm. that will always have a negative effect on the type of player that you might develop at the end. But I think if you look at Japan as a very good example, um, different different culture for sure, much more collectivist. Um, China's much more individualistic uh, uh, mentality than, than, than Japan. However, Japan did adopt that philosophy of a lot of technical repetition at the younger ages and the players are all tidy with the ball. And you don't see a whole lot of individuals who dribble, you know, three, four players and do it on their own. But as a team, they all function very well. And um, I think that China can get to that with, with the right methodology. And I think that football always will, will reflect the mentality and culture of society. So China has to play a way which suits China. There's not a lot of fast players in China, for example. Genetics are not like that. There's a lot of small people in China, for example. So, therefore, the style of play, again, Japan's probably a good comparison as to what you can do with good technique. Um but, but yeah, also, as I said about the command-based learning, I think that Ch- the Chinese experience really taught me that everything is contextual. So what, what the correct way to coach is depends on what's right for that group, that individual, that society. And it doesn't mean that it will work anywhere else in the world. Very interesting. And I suppose then that's your, your first real experience of strategic sort of level football, right? Looking at like right. a bigger picture. I mean, I, mean, I mean, you talked about context there. I mean, what are the other things, I mean, what are the other main takeaways you took from that? I mean, in terms of managing staff and coach de- development and those sort of bigger picture things that you come into, you know, much of your roles laid down, right down the line. Yeah, there was a lot of things. I mean, from a management perspective, so as I mentioned, <coughs> I had the chance to work with a really good person, Dr. Hay. And one of the key things that he wanted from me as a manager, because he, Dr. Hay didn't know football, so he was just interested in, in managing the staff well. And he really wanted me to be very, very close to the staff. And essentially what he wanted was a type of relationship where any member of staff would feel comfortable to tell me about whatever they're thinking at any moment. Because his opinion was that if you catch any problem before it becomes a problem, we can deal with it. But if we don't have that open communication, and people won't come to you as a manager, so you have to initiate, you have to make time every week for these one-to-one meetings. You have to ask people what, sometimes you have to draw out of them actually what they're thinking and feeling. Mm. But it was essentially about, because these people, people are living abroad in cultures that they don't know and don't fully um, adapt to and they're also working with kids where there's you know there's a lot of challenges to, to develop these Chinese players and people have got their own fears insecurities motivations aspirations so to try and understand individuals and then to use that feedback to say this is this is what we have to adapt so that we can keep everybody motivated etc so that that very open transparent communicative management style is, is the way I still operate today as a sport director at all all elements of the club if the under nines coach you know, wants to talk, even if he doesn't want to talk to me, I'll call him in to talk to me at some point, you know, to see how's things going, what are you doing with the kids, what are you doing um, in this session, that session, etc. So I try and have open communication. In terms of the, the football side and the coaching, um, it was really about, it's really interesting as well when you when you work with coaches because, for example, I, I, was, I was still very young, I was in my mid-20s at the time. Um, so I think the only way you get respect is by showing that you, that you know what you're talking about. So you have to be very organised always had to have a lot of video clips, for example, of everything I wanted to see in the game. I had to have examples of top players doing those things. For example, if I wanted, if there was there was pro-licensed coaches, for example, working in the staff there who are much older than me, and if I wanted to tell them to change something, for example, sometimes I would have to get the video recording of their session and do it in a way that was um, not a situation where I'm saying, Saul, I saw you doing this, and, and then you're saying, no, I didn't do that. And then I'm saying, no, but you did do it. You know, we try and avoid, not, not making it personal, not making a conflict, 
look, here's what we see. What do we think? Well, this is this is what we agreed the methodology was. From a methodological perspective, I always explained everything based on science. So actually, one of the one of the ways I kind of made my name and and um, got perhaps to China, Croatia, etc., was that. Um, I've done a lot of research into how people learn motor skills, how they make decisions under pressure, et cetera, apply that to football context and try to find a scientific basis for how to develop uh, players. And that was the way that I tried to manage coaches by explaining to them, this is what the science says. This is the evidence we have. This is practical examples of this in action. Um, tell me if you disagree. And I always said to them, if you can tell me a better way, and we all agree it's better. I'll delete this whole presentation right now and, and we'll start again with that way. So it's not my ideas. Yeah. This is just the ideas that seem to, you know, and, and that was the way I always tried to manage. Interesting. And so tell us about the um, your hijack split then, Croatia. How did that come about, that opportunity? Did you, you'd go there first as a first team coach, did you, or something? So basically what happened, so, so Chinese New Year came back. Um, actually, <coughs> ironically, I came to Hungary as a consultant for another club for a few days. I was looking at the academy and... Um, giving some feedback. Uh, so that was Chinese New Year. And then I went back to see my family for a couple of days in, in Scotland. And then the border closed because the, the, the coronavirus started at exactly the moment that I left the country. So I came back for 10 days or two weeks and then I couldn't get back over. So that moment, it was a case of, well, wait a month or two. This will all go away. You'll come back over. Um, I know that's, um, you know, it's, it's hard to think of that situation now. But that, at the moment, that was the thinking. And then, so basically I was stuck at home and... Uh, one of my friends, so who used to be, uh, used to run Dinamo Zagreb Academy, Ivan Kepcha. So he became sporting director at um, Hajduk. And Ivan was somebody I got to know when he was at Dinamo. And as I mentioned about that research I was doing, he wrote the Croatian Football Federation youth curriculum, along with obviously Romeo Jozak. And um, he used some of the some of my work in that in that um, curriculum. And that was where we got to build our relationship. I also brought Ivan out, for example, to China as, a, as one of the coach educators. Tony Carr was there. Um, for example, and we've done things for Chinese coaches, et cetera, education events. Um, so Ivan went to, to, to Hydric Split as sport director. Um, I, I was basically at home, not a lot to do. He contacted me and he said, look, we don't have anybody right now to do analysis of the opponent. Would you mind just checking games on the videos and doing something until you go back to China and send them to... I also met before Igor Tudor, who's the head coach at the time. And we just send Igor a report, what you see in the opponent, tactical ideas, etc. So no worries. Started doing that. Um, never thought anything much of it. But then as time went on, the border wasn't opening in China. Um, the season ran to a close around May and, and Croatia. And then Ivan called me and said, look, I've spoke with Igor. You know, we'd like you to come out full time, work here and be more involved, you know, day by day with the first team. And, and you know, basically just get involved in the club. Um and of course, of course, nothing was happening in China at that time. It was a chance to go to a new culture, which is um, fantastic football culture. So I jumped to that opportunity. Uh, and as I said, originally, yes, uh, I went to work as part of Tudor staff. He left very early um, after I agreed to join. So basically, as soon as I came out, there was a new head coach and that became a problem. You know, in the beginning, he was still asked me, you know, can you can you? do something here can you have a look at this can you go watch that opponent but it's but it started to be, it started to become clear he was more trying to find things to keep me busy so that i wouldn't be around um and that was more of a insecurity issue um and and again as i said that that's when i started to get involved wider in the club so for example i would do methodology seminars for the academy um staff a hydro even though hydro already was one of the best um position academies in europe i think number eight that year um then in the first team, we had a lot of youth players playing at the time as well. I think I can't remember how many debuts. I think it was at least eight that season from Academy as well. And 
Um, and then as they started to get involved with the sport director, started to speak to other club sport directors, started to speak to agents about, you know, transfers, etc., which was a whole new area, which, to be honest, I would never have intended to go into. But, you know, that's how life ended up, and I'm very happy it did. Tell us about, like, Hydric Split and the methodology, you know, one of the best academies in the world. Tell us a little bit about what they do there. Why are they so successful? Yeah, well, look, the, the Croatian youth development situation is an outside... I mean, I mean, I know that you've heard the story, obviously, from the Croatians themselves and the methodology. From an outsider, it's even more interesting, I would say, because I, I've got something to compare it to. I mean, Scotland is a bigger country than Croatia, which is a very scary thought if you're comparing the levels of talent. And that's no disrespect to, to young Scottish players, but the volume of talented players as as um you know you know there's 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 five or six Belgian more than every age group you know in Dinamo Zagreb and even in Hajduk. So the first thing you have to understand is that the talent is there and and actually when I first went to Dinamo and just watched Dinamo Academy I thought wow this is unbelievable level um as you know but then I was thinking well they take all the best kids in the country so that is it's basically like the national team of Croatia youth team so that is what it is. Then I went to Hajduk and I saw that Hajduk also has this level of talent in the academy at every age group. And then I would see local local teams from some small town of 30,000 people, and you would see the level of talent of players that they had there. And then I realised that it wasn't a Dinamo thing, it was a, it was a, it was a Croatia thing or a regional thing. And then, and then you start to realise that it's not only football. They're so good at, at, at tennis, they're so good at water polo, basketball, almost every sport that they take part in, they're successful. And they're such a small population. So... Then I started to try to understand, well, what's going on here? So actually, I felt at that time there must be something genetic also um, underlying. And I tried to do some research into that. And I found that there was a genetic... Uh, basically, with, with genetics in sport, we don't really understand the correlation well. So we can't say that um, if you're born with this gene, that means that you're going to be good at this. But what we can do is, in a revisionist perspective, we can look at all the people, for example, all the 100-meter winners in the Olympics, uh, sprint, sprint winners, and then we can check... Oh, everybody that's won the 100 metres has had this gene, you know, and everybody else is very fast, and they have it much more often than people who are not. So you can start to see correlations. And there was this genome found between people who are more successful at ball sports, where you have to, you know, track the flight of a ball and receive it with your body, whether it's tennis or whether it's football or basketball. Um, so this gene was more associated with success in ball sports, and the genome was found more um, per head of population in the Balkan region of Europe than anywhere else. So that, that was one thing that was interesting because you do find that those kids at seven, eight, before they come into the academies, they move very well. They're so balanced. They, they, their ability with the ball is, is very, very good. Um, then you add the cultural factor. So, of course, football's huge. Street culture is still there. They still play football. The weather, it's got more sunny days on average than any other country in Europe. So, therefore, the, the climate's perfect for playing outdoors. The culture of what they do when they play football is also very important because if you were to go to a street football game in, in Glasgow, for example, which unfortunately doesn't exist too much anymore, you might see players, you know, kick the ball towards their goal, run after that. That direct, aggressive style of play that the, the mentality of the culture, you know, is instilled in them for whatever reason. In Croatia, if you go to the street, you'll see players trying to dribble four or five players. So it's, it's like Brazil in that sense. It's like South America. They are, mm. they are individuals. They are artists. They're very creative. They're very unstructured as a, as a culture, creations. They're, they're not very um, organized society. That means that they're more instinctive. So you get these instinctive, intuitive players that play on the street. They know how to nutmeg. They know how to do a little step over. Then you bring them into an academy, which, as you know, is very structured, the methodology. They work a lot on one and two touch play and, and um, good habits, good behaviors, repetition. 
So they take this creative, spontaneous, you know, little genius who's already got technical foundation, and then they teach them how to play serious, organised football. For example, in Scotland, you couldn't do that because the players don't come with the 1v1 abilities at 7 and 8 that they do in Croatia. So you have to teach 1v1 and you have to you have to break down those skills more than you do over there. Um, so, so those are the fundamental things. And then in terms of the methodology, then I think that where maybe Croatia is different from some of the other uh, countries around, which are less organised, is probably in terms of um, how serious they treat the, the, the academy. And um, yeah, basically a lot of individual focus. Individual focus is the key. Small group focus, technical focus. For any sport in the Balkans, technique is the way that they teach. They teach with repetition. They teach with um, the, the same as what you do with table tennis, uh, you know, in China. It's, it's repetition of the technique over and over again. And that, as I say, it's not, it's not a football thing. It's a cultural thing all round. And, and it's applied to football also there, So which, which, in my opinion, is also, um, from what I've seen, for the youngest ages, the way that the players become the most skillful. And then, then they slowly start to drip feed in, you know, later than most countries have seen, tactical work so for example under 15s under 16s you'll start to come more on the team structure etc but you know I, I think under 13s 14s and most most um for example clubs in scotland they would be working on their team shape and tactics mm. and things like that so so it's much more small group focused very interesting i mean yeah i remember you know they used to talk about yugoslavia you know former yugoslavia now which is obviously part of croatia because they're they used to be the Brazilians of Europe. I mean, that was what they know, you know, Prozanecki and that generation, very interesting. What about yourself there? I mean, you talk a lot about your research. What, what, what's, where, where, where does that come from? I mean, you know, it's not necessarily a, a natural asset of people in football. I mean, you know, you're obviously very intelligent. And where, is, where does your experience of research come? Does that come at university or something like that? Well, I mean, probably not, not so much. Um, I, I'm actually now actually now um, teach a, a master's degree, so I have to be careful what I say. But I was going to say that I probably didn't learn that much at, at university itself. Um, but but what I did was, so I'll, I'll tell you the full story quickly. When I was working with the Scottish FA, it was the first time I went to Croatia. So this is actually linked. We went to Dinamo Zagreb Academy. We saw the level of talent. We were getting the kids at 12 years old to our performance school. And we saw what they were getting, you know, eight, nine years old and what they were like by the time they got to under-13s. So they were way ahead of us under-13s compared to our starting point. So I couldn't I couldn't uh, wave a magic wand and, and change what happens in Scotland between the age of 0 and 12. So what we also saw was that the drills and activities we were doing, I think some of the best coaches in Dynamo Academy, we obviously we copied some stuff that they'd done, and obviously other stuff that we learned from Spain, from Holland, from Germany, like, like, like you would have done, like we all do. Um, I think... Uh, without being arrogant myself and the coach I work with at the performance school, our sessions, you know, seem to be similar to what the good coaches there would do. Um, so that might seem like a pleasing thing. It was actually a worrying thing for us because we went back to the to the hotel at night. We said, well, we're already doing similar similar drills and similar exercises to what they're doing here. Our players are starting at a deficit point to what mm. we get them. And if we work for the Scottish FA, our job is to catch up with the national teams of the other countries. So, so then I was thinking... What are we going to do? And 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 I and I came to a point where I've been coaching since I was sixteen, where I saw that there wasn't any really, there wasn't any new drills that nobody had ever seen before. There wasn't any training sessions, you know, that you go and watch a training session, you think this is nothing like I've ever seen in any other, any other coach before. So then I was thinking, what can be the way that we can get a percentage of improvement? And that was when I thought we have to do, I have to do something different if I want to be a better coach. And I started to think. So then I started to, I started to think. So I actually went back to do a master's degree at university, mainly so I could get access to journals so that I could independently research. 
And I went right back to the beginning of, of motor skill learning, the papers. I went back to the beginning of decision-making, of, of um, even all the way to neuroscience now and how, the, how we understand how the brain works. Because I was thinking, well, let me, let me take it back to what coaches say is the right way to develop players. And let me try and go back and see if, if I can find anything that maybe... Because, you know, we've all got our own biases, myself included. So, and, and football relies a lot on um, what they call, you know, like, it's, it's almost like, like folk stories. You know, you sit around the campfire, you know, this is the way my grandfather used to chase away the squirrels, you know, at night. So this is what you have to do. You have to beat the drum and you have to, you know, that's the way stories are passed down for generations. And coaching in football is much like that. You know, that's the way we did it then. This is how you should do it now. But there wasn't a lot of trying to look at it objectively. Is that the best way to do it? So that was what I tried to do. Um, and, and what I found, I think it's not by chance, um, was that what, what, for example, they wanted to do in the Croatian Football Federation curriculum and how they worked at Dinamo Zagreb was very closely aligned to what science was telling me. Of course, that was going against, as you know, what was the dogma in the United Kingdom at that time, which was no unopposed work, no technical work, um, you know, just play games, let the players figure things out on their own, don't coach them. Um, etc, etc, etc so that wasn't you know, what, what the research showed me but um, the, the reason I did it was to try and get an advantage um, over other coaches and yeah, th then it was basically independent learning and then I started then I put everything together in the end into, you know I've got some huge presentations that I could share with you another time if you're interested Yeah, yeah I mean, well just tell us me about that because that's obviously interesting and you know, it's a debate we have often here and you know, on, on social media you know, the bane of my life you know, trying to convince coaches that spending time alone with the balls you know, is imperative like some people don't listen so what is the research around that what's the scientific data well also i think um you know you, we're always going to face against this <clears throat> i think people because I, I would even speak sometimes to academics who believed in that and i would talk about the research that i'd read which was contrary and they would almost kind of shut down you know they, they would avoid going acknowledging that you know they would only focus on some other studies or and by definition, if you're a scientist or if you're an academic, you're not supposed to do that. You know, you're supposed to just go by what the research has shown you. But what I saw was that there's also this romantic philosophical element in football. So I think there's 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 um, there's three types of coaches. You know, there's the coaches that really just want to figure out what's best and do that. And if that involves unopposed repetition, even if it's boring, that's what we're going to do. And Croatians are very much like that because they're very pragmatic about we need to develop players and sell them and so on. Mm. Um, and the players are very pragmatic that we're very poor background, we want to play Real Madrid, we need to do this boredom work. Then there's coaches who are who are romantic in the sense of, you know, um, well, we love to play football on the street in the old days, and it wasn't well, it wasn't a coach making us do something, it wasn't a coach telling us, and I became a good player, I became a professional player after just following that path. So let the kids enjoy it, let them have fun, etc. Um, there's no evidence to say that the more you have fun in football is the, the, um, the, the better ability you'll have later on. In fact, on the contrary, evidence shows that the better you are at something, the more you enjoy it. So it's actually a kind of reverse engineering situation. Mm. Um, so there's a romantic element, and then there's also the then there's the innovation element. So there's 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 the new generation of coaches that need to do something different. Otherwise, how do you get a job? So if if if, if for example, if I've got a better CV than you, and I've played professional football, and I'm an academy, and you coach the same way that I coach, then how are you ever going to get the job ahead of me? So you need to invent something that's different. So you need to come and say, well, what these guys are doing is wrong. This is the right way. Here's why, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's this um, need to invent, need to need to do something different. Um, and you see that it's not only in football. You see that in society all the time. You know, whatever whatever we grew up um, believing in was was a, re a rebellion against what our parents believed in. Whatever the young generation that grew up now, they don't they rebel against what we believed in. And society always goes like that. 
Um, however, if you go to actually to the science of it, so first of all, if you look at any go outside of football, any sports that are Let's look at let's look at cycling for example. So so David Brailsford he's got a quote where he talks about why Team Sky was so successful Tour de France etc. And it's very simple. They've got this end goal which is the big goal, win the race. Break it down to as as many small pieces as you can. Improve each of those pieces as much as you can. Put it all back together. You've got a huge improvement. They do the same in you know American football, Formula One. Mm. Go around the houses. For some reason in football there's. We, we're trying to move towards the opposite. It's like, teach everything at once. The game is the only thing. That no, is, yeah, well, decision's the only important, only important thing. That's what it's talking about, right? The decision's the only important thing when, you know, and the reality is, you know, yeah. if, if you've got no technique, you can't do any decisions anyway. But, well, that, well that, that, that's the first thing. I, I, I mean, even, even myself, for example, when I, when I was a young player, if I was playing up front, I was the kind of player that could, I could see the picture around. I could see a player running off me and I know that I could flick the ball around the corner. It wasn't, I wasn't that I wasn't smart enough or not creative enough, but I couldn't play that pass. So the only thing I could do as a, as a you know, tall Scottish guy from that generation was like put my arm out, hold off the defender, take the ball in and then lay the ball back to a midfield player that was facing me. Mm. But it wasn't, it wasn't because I couldn't see it, it was because I couldn't play it. So, um, so there's a couple of things from the science. So first of all, th- th- there's two problems. One of them is cognitive and one of them is, is from a coordination perspective where we're learning motor skills. So from a cognitive point of view, there's limited attention um, that we have in, in the front part of the brain and the working memory. So we have this problem of, of cognitive overload. So the only way that you solve that is that you have to put things to the subconscious. So um, we, we know that from studies on multitasking. For example, um, there's two types of, so there's a few different types of brain waves, but alpha brain waves are the brain waves that you see when you measure the brain activity when it's most relaxed. So you can measure the brain if you're trying to do a skill which is new for you then you'll see the brain activity, you know, have a lot of activity going on there when you scan it. When you do something which you're very skilled at, there's very, very low levels of activity. So we're actually showing there that the brain is doing less work the more repetitions you've done of a technical skill. Mm. There's also other studies on, on dual task, it's called. So basically, so I think one of them was, was a karate kick. It was, it was some years ago now, but if I remember correctly, it was a karate kick. So basically you get a beginner in, to do to do these karate kicks on a on a combination dummy where they have to hit at the same time they have to solve some mathematics puzzles and of course their brains overloaded and they can't even think about the numbers while they're focusing on the technique of this kick then you bring a black belt in they do the kick subconsciously essentially the technique the technical element and then they can solve the math puzzles at the same time so what we're showing is that for decision making for thinking for using the brain the more that you put these things to the subconscious the more it actually frees up the brain to think about everything else. And you see the same, it's not only in sports, for example, in mathematics, you know, if, if five multiplied by five is 25, and I've not done any calculation to solve that. I just repeated that, you know, thousands of times when I was when I was five, six, seven years old, and now I know that five multiplied by five is 25. But imagine that you're an astrophysicist and every problem you need to solve, these, you know, very complex equations, which, which you know, I, I certainly can't understand. If every time you had to solve that, you had to go back and do the puzzles for every elementary thing, how long would that take you? So you have to repeat these things, put them in the subconscious, and that frees up the, the part of the brain to focus on higher order problems. Um, on, on a football example, for example, technically I'm not so good. So if you if you play a long switch to me, you know, 40 meters and the ball's coming fast towards my chest, at that moment, I'm going to have some element of panic and I'm going to be thinking, I need to control this ball, you know, properly. And my whole brain is thinking about controlling that ball. If you, if you ping that ball to Cristiano Ronaldo, he's already looking around, where's the teammates, where's the opponent? Do I control it in this angle, in that angle? 
etc., etc., because his body's going to naturally orientate itself to control the ball in that way. So only by repetition do we get there. And then from the coordination point of view, um, you, you so there's a few different stages as well. So it starts off with the it's called the degrees of freedom problem, which is we've got all these um muscles and, and ways that we can move our joints in the body. And then what does the body have to freeze and what does the body have to use? For example, if I pass the ball to you to stop it in that spot. So the brain's got to figure out which parts of the body are, are to hold rigid and which parts of the body are to be loose. Um, so, that, so for example, if we're talking about passing the ball and you've never passed the ball before in your life, then me and you standing five meters away from each other in a straight line is probably enough to get your brain just to try to understand that part of it. Then the brain goes into variability. So then you can pass the ball, but then can you pass it at different angles, at different speeds, at different weights, you know, a chip pass, a curve pass, etc. And then the final part is skill, which is skill is, 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 you know, choosing the right technique and executing it the right way at the right time for that situation. So that's decision-making combined with technique. Um, some, some of the studies which, which people um, quote when they talk about this is they talk about blocks versus random practice. And it's, it's, I don't want to be crude, but it's a little bit lazy from a scientific point of view because um, the studies don't really reveal a whole lot. So first of all, these studies, the block practice essentially as for if anybody doesn't know that I've passed the ball to you 10 times in the same way. That's blocked. It's just yeah. repeating the same thing. Random practice would be, you know, I might be passing it now, then I might be heading it, then I might be dribbling. And it's, you know, so the brain's always ad adapting to new things. And because they showed that the transfer of skills was better for random practice than blocked, that that means that, you know, well, essentially they, they extrapolated that to mean that if you just let the kids play games and don't do technical work, they'll be better. Which, which first of all, all the exercises in those studies were unopposed exercises. So they never compared games to technical training. And secondly, they only compared blocked to random. And if you said to me, Chris, you can only do one of two things. You can't do both. You can only do isolated technical training all the time, or you can play a foot, like small-sided games all the time. I would play small-sided games, but we don't have to choose one or the other. And there yeah. is a study, there is a study which compares blocked random variable practice to sequential learning. So blocked, then variable, then random, which means that basically during the session, the you're making it a little bit harder cognitively mm. each time, and the player learns better blocked to variable to random than they do if they just do random or just do blocked. So the evidence actually shows that the approach of starting with something simple, let's say working on you know the step over slowly at the cone, etc., then maybe building up the speed, building up the passive defender, then maybe you know, overload situations or, you know, you build up the complexity as you go along, that yeah. that's the best way to, to learn according to the evidence. But that's often, well, I never hear it mentioned by people who talk about those, by those studies. Wow. Interesting. And, and also, yeah, I mean, I, I was a teacher for five years. I mean, that's same, you know, what it's perfect sense for me in terms of working with young people in the classroom translate. So, yes. I mean, what about the whole sort of perception action coupling thing that everyone always, you know, that little catchphrase everyone always throws out? Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, it's not. It's not to say that decision making isn't important, and the perceptive yeah. skills are not, they're all important. But as you said, you can perceive. I used to perceive the right. Look, I mean, I think we, we've all probably worked with players who, um, <coughs> we've worked with players who could. You go to the classroom, you know. So I'll give me a video analysis. You'll pause it. This player should be there. This player, you know, you know all the answers. Yeah. I worked with some 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 young players who were very 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 very. You know, they could be on uh, Monday night football for sure. On the pitch, they were not able to execute the right decisions. Yeah. You know, to have, I was one of those, you know. And I've also worked with players 
who always make the right decisions on the pitch. They're very talented. You know, they they see pictures, but they can't explain to you what's happening, you know, in the classroom. And I'm sure we all know players who are very talented, but they they maybe are not the best coaches because they can't explain mm. what's happening. So the first thing to understand is that, is that there's just two separate parts of the brain. So I, I, I'll answer your question directly in a moment, but if I can go back one step to, there's also this discussion about players need to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it to learn effectively. Um, unfortunately, again, it's, it's, it's not research back. I, I would tell the players why we want to do this. I would show the players before training sessions, look, mm. here's, you know, here's maybe what we did last week or here's what Barcelona do. We're going to work on this today. So I, I'm not saying don't do that. But the fact is that um, the part of the brain which thinks and processes information consciously is not linked to the part of the brain which makes those subconscious decisions. It's, it's, so so there's, one, there's one very interesting piece of research. Um, there was a person called Eugene, and this is a true uh, piece of research, who he had, a, I think he had a bacterial disease in the brain. It ate away part of the brain. And basically that front part of the brain was destroyed. So with Eugene... Anything that you told him a couple of minutes later, he completely forgotten it. He couldn't remember anything that you discussed, and he couldn't explain things either to people because of that part of the brain was destroyed. But what they found was very interesting. He would go for a walk every day out of his house. He would walk around the neighborhood, and he would always arrive back at the house. When they asked him where do you go when you leave the house, he couldn't tell them where he went. When they asked, when they gave him a blank piece of paper and told us draw where you go, what direction, he couldn't draw anything. So he couldn't explain anything what he was doing. But what they found was that. The part, because he'd been walking around the neighborhood, you know, hundreds of times over the years, the subconscious part of his brain as a habit just knew this was the path to go back. But it, so that part of the brain, which was based on habits, was still functional and operational, even though the front part was destroyed. So then what they did with Eugene was they started to teach him new things just by habits. Repeat this, repeat this, repeat this. As soon as, as soon as one or two minutes had passed, Eugene had completely forgotten what they told him. He forgot he'd even done anything. But then he started to, to, re, to do those things that they'd been teaching him just for wow. repetition. So we put that to a football coaching context. So if, if, I, if I go to see a coach, do a training session, and he stops the session and he says to the midfield player, OK, you've just passed the ball there. Why did you do that? Or, no, I, I should have, where should you have, what should you have done? I should have passed the ball there because he was free. OK, very good. Now play. Well, I mean, that's all well and good if you're trying to, if you're trying to educate coaches because you're asking the player to explain to you what the right decision was. But mm. I want players that make the right decisions not understand what the right decision is. So the difference is that that's where you need the repetition. That's where you need to maybe break things down to smaller group situations, maybe, maybe coach a little bit more and show them in this situation. And it's not to say that you coach, this is the only way to do it. You give a lot of variations. For example, if it's, if it's a, for example, in futsal in Brazil, They've got, I think, it's, I think it's 30 different ways to solve a two-against-two situation. Only two-against-two. I mean, I can't write down uh, all those different ways to solve a two-against-two. But they teach them to kids from a young age. And people think that, you know, they, they just play futsal and, and they, they try things. No, no, they, they practice. And when you learn, for example, many different ways to solve a two-against-two, then, of course, you go to the game and there's all these micro-situations happen, 11 v 11 mm. game. And, of course, you can teach players by patterns, 11, 11 v 0, et cetera. Um, but like when you see Spain play, it's much more fluid and unpredictable if in these little triangles and groups of three, four players, they solve these situations um, intuitively because of that repetition, but it is taught. So if, if I then go back to, yeah, the players need to repeat the, the correct behaviours and learn what the different solutions are and then decide. So then when we come to the deciding, um, 
So, so, play, so players learn from, from uh, pattern recognition. So what happens is that you see something in the environment that reminds the subconscious part of your brain of a previous, these previous situations that you've seen, and then you automatically make the, what you think is the right decision. Now, there are some things in the game where you can think consciously. For example, we're 2-0 down and the opponent keeps, I don't know, or, or we're not high <laughs> pressing because we started a low block. I'm the captain, I'm the centre-back, and I say, guys, we're 2-0 down, we need to press, we need to... That's a conscious decision. And that can happen in the game too. But when we're talking about real decision-making, you pass the ball to me and the opponent closes me down. What do I do? That's, that's a faster decision. And therefore, that's made... I see something in the environment. That triggers a response in my brain. And then I make an action. So in terms of the... In terms of if I can, if I can use the, the, the technical repetition element, what you're doing with, with the technique building is developing the toolbox. And you're putting all of these tools in the box. And then at the end, you know, if you if you're if you're a mechanic, you know, you might need the hammer, you might need the the you know the spanner, you might need you know th there's different tools that you might need depending on the situation that you, the problem that you're facing. But if you don't, if you can only use one tool, then if you've got another problem, you're going to be limited. So technical training has given you a lot of tools that you can choose to use. Then deciding what tool to use. Again, I, th I think the, I think the training through the the small group scenarios and training training that through. Through the perception, um, through the perception is also important because, for example, let, let, let's say for example, um, so that you um, work on a step over against the cone, and then you go to eleven v eleven game and it's three goals for us for you know how often do you see the players doing step overs and and very rarely does it go just from that to that. So there's, so there's these smaller pieces that you can add in. For example, you can use the passive defender to, you know, if the body drops, you know, one way there, you can start to put these cues in. You know, what did Maradona used to do when he was dribbling? He was obviously paying attention to the hips, the knees, the ankle. I don't know what he was paying attention to. And he probably can't tell us. Well, mm. he definitely can't tell us now, but he probably couldn't tell us when he was alive. How did, you know, what did he see in that subconscious moment? But you can give players um, visual cues at that if this happens, then you know, this might be the solution and mm. try to help them improve their decision-making in that way because that is how they make decisions in the game. Yeah. If, you pass, if you pass the ball to me and there's no defender behind me, I can open up, you know, in the back foot and play. But if the defender comes at this angle, I might have to do something else. If the defender comes at that angle, if the defender comes at this angle and the ball's played to me in this way or in that way, it might be different. And you can break it down to these smaller pieces and start to, start to give players solutions to real-life problems that they face on the pitch. But I think that also takes a lot from a coach to really analyse situations in the game on a micro level and break mm. it down into all these little uh, solutions. And, you know, I don't know if every coach wants to really go into that depth. And and and, and the one thing, Saul, as well, just to finish off, that when, it, when a coach says to me, for example, that um, the game's too complicated, there's too many solutions, and, okay, I agree with you, repetition does work, etc. but football's just too complex and they need to figure it out on their own. Well, for example, if you look at chess grandmasters, you know they 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 memorize on average ten thousand full chess games, not not ten thousand moves, ten thousand full games. So if you look at, for example, at Marcelo Bielsa, you know apparently he 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 codes every action he sees in a football game. If he sees something that he's not seen before, you know he's got this Excel spreadsheet with different colors in it, and he logs every behavior, every movement, every pattern that, that he's ever seen. So. If you're not going, if you're not putting in that work and you're not trying to get there, then you can't mm. tell me that you you can't learn because I can't remember the quote from Bielsa about how many ways there are to communicate with a pass. I, I think like like you know twenty or thirty ways to communicate through a pass, just in terms of the way you you play the pass. Now I, I don't know what I don't know what those are. So it's not a criticism of a coach to say that 
that you don't have all the knowledge. But what, but what I would ask them is try and study all those details of the game. And then, okay, it's too complicated and the players have to also take responsibility for their journey. But if you've never tried to learn and tried to break it down and tried to teach it, uh, and, and I'll give you one final um, comparison also, for example, not only in sports, in education, they had this similar debate some years ago in California. I think it was in the, I think it was in the 70s or 80s. And um, California is obviously very liberal, very progressive thinking. I, I spent you know, some time there when I was younger as well. Fantastic uh, place. But they, they decided around 70s or 80s that they were not going to teach the English language in the structured way that they normally teach it. Whereas you learn the letters, you learn to draw the letters, then you learn the words, etc. They said they were just going to do immersion training. They were going to bring the kids in, let them be around the language. The teacher was not there to teach. They were just there to guide. Almost essentially the same debate that we have there in football. They tried it. They tried it with, with teaching in English. Um, and also important to know, California is the most affluent state in the US. Why is that important? Because affluence directly correlates with educational attainment. If mm. you grow up in a rich neighborhood, your grades in school are, are on average higher than if you grew up in a poor neighborhood, for example. So the richest state in America had the second worst education scores of the all 50 states, worse than you know Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, after 10 years of this system. And they decided they had to go back to the structured way where you have to learn A, B, C, you have to repeat it, then you have to learn the words, you have to learn the grammar, you have to learn. And then in the end, of course, you can use your creativity and you can, you can write stories in an imaginative way, but something has to be a foundation. And I think, as you say, from a teaching background, so I think in education, they call it scaffolding, yeah. where... You know, you learn the first level, then you add another level. It's actually um, common sense, I think, to some degree. Yes, mate. Well, look, we, we come a little bit off topic there. That's really interesting and, uh, yeah, really insightful. Amazing. I mean, to, to let's go back into your career now. Tell us about, you know, back to Dundee, back to sunny Dundee United. Back to sunny. How, did that, how, how did that happen? And tell us about that role now. You know, you, you're a technical director role there, right? Well, you, yes, also, so, so- <clears throat> well, first of all, I, I know I know that you're joking there, Saul, but Dundee is actually the, the sunniest part of Scotland. Um, oh, there so, you go, mate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that why is that, is that why they go? Are they playing gold? Is it? Is that the other Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that's um, maybe that's the reason. Um, but no, basically, so Dundee United. What happened was I left Highlook Split. Um, at that time, Dundee United had an interesting project. Probably they had, you know, maybe the most progressive youth academy in Scotland uh, at that time. Andy Goldie has now went to Swansea. Um, his academy. Academy manager might be a good person, you know, for your podcast as well. Yeah. He, he believed a lot in individual development in the academy. So, you know, myself and Andy, Andy used to work at the SFA Performance School. He coached Billy Gilmore, for example, at, right. at his school. Um, and we, we had a lot of similar ideas. So he was at that project. He'd been building the academy up for a few years. And, uh, you know, they wanted to really use the academy more and, and progress it to the first team. And they wanted to develop maybe a style of play, which was more European orientated, et cetera. So obviously not too many Scottish guys probably who've, you know, been in worked abroad in these type of countries and and you know uh, in those type of systems. So uh, I guess it was, I guess um, my experience there made me interesting. You know, for them, I had a couple of other opportunities even at, even at bigger clubs at that moment. But the project at Dundee United was very interesting because they wanted to do something different from Scottish football, and they also appointed a head coach internally from the academy, um, Tam Courts. And no team in Scotland, no club had ever promoted somebody from the academy to be head coach of the first team who was not previously a famous player. So they were doing something which, okay, in Spain and Germany would be considered the, you know, the right way to do things. But in Scotland, it was, it was kind of groundbreaking. And I, and I also wanted to try and play some small part to help that be successful because I hoped it would try and change, you know, Scottish football. So, so I went in for, for those reasons. Um, and so my role there, so my role there was called head of tactical performance 
which was the same job title of the previous head coach. So I basically took the role that the head coach uh, got promoted from. Right. The difference was that he worked only in academy before, but they made a, a bigger role uh, but just because of experiences that I'd had, you know, uh, working with a sport director, etc. So <clears throat> essentially, yeah, my role involves everything from like the, so working with the first team week by week in terms of looking at the opponent, how do they play? How do I recommend that we play? You know, the kind of real details in our game as well. You know, when we pressed, he was two meters further away here, you know, he needs to come in, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And and I would I would present that you know to the to the to the head coach assistant coach, and um, from there you know we'd have our discussions about it, and of course the head coach always makes the final decision, um you know what ideas he uses and doesn't, but 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 definitely it was an inclusive environment, um and so 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 I was involved a lot on the let's say the week by week stuff, but during the transfer window etc it was also a case of okay if we want to play this way, um then what profile of players do we need? For example, we signed a player Dylan Levitt from Manchester United. Um, he's in the Wales squad now at the World Cup. Um, so that was a player that he played in Croatia the year before when I was there. So that was that was how I knew of him through the, the Croatian world. Um, he didn't do very well at Isra. He was on loan. But I just I just felt like this was the player that could really be a number six in our system that never gives the ball away, technically excellent, etc. And turned out to be, you know, one of our one of our best players. So so um so it was it was linked from the from the day by day, week by week to the big picture of how do we build this model and then also linking with the academy staff to trying to create a trying to create a continuity of ideas that you know the under 16s under 18s play a similar way to the first team and that was really difficult Saul, because you know under 18s Dundee United could dominate 65% of the ball against you know Celtic Rangers and also win the game you know obviously at first team level Celtic Rangers are going to dominate the ball against you and you know sometimes you're hanging on for dear life you know hoping they don't score so you can make a goal or you can get a draw and if you take for example the winger from the academy that's used to always, you know, opening up the game, and then he comes to a game where he doesn't have the ball for the majority, and he has to know exactly his, his defensive position, etc. That was something which was which was an interesting um, situation because how do you solve that gap between a dominant academy team and one of the lower budget, let's say, um, first teams, and allow that player to be able to play in a, in a system where they have to do other things, other jobs, more counter attack, more uh, discipline game, etc. At times. Um, so that, that's another topic, but but my role was my role basically kind of encompassed, you know, all of those segments from the long term strategic to the to the first team, and then touching a little bit. I wasn't on with the academy day by day, but I had communication and I was a kind of link person between all, all segments of the club. And and how long were you there? So so I was there last season. Um, at the beginning, first half of the season, and then I left to go to Russia. Um, yeah, okay. In November. Um, and then and then around February. Um, around February the the project finished because of the war well pro- the project didn't finish yeah. I, I left the project and uh, Dundee United asked me to come back until the end of the season um, and continued continued to the end of the season until this job came up so then tell us about your current role then uh, in, in uh, Hungary yeah so my role as a sport director is basically uh, encompasses you know everything on the football department there are people who do it in different ways <coughs> so so also I am um, another, another project that I have is a um, as I mentioned earlier, so I created a course on the sport director role along with my, key, my colleague Ivan Kepcha, who, as I mentioned, used to run Dino Zagreb mm. Academy, um, used to be sport director at Hydrogsplat and Liga Warsaw, and he's been a consultant for various clubs, Brentford in England, etc. He's a consultant for us now. So we created this course because there wasn't at that time a lot of courses on the sport director role, and there isn't actually a lot of understanding or consensus about what the sport director does, um, and it can be different things in different clubs and with different profiles. 
So, for example, you could get a sport director who's maybe been an agent, for example, or comes from a negotiation background, and they really focus more on that side of things. Mm. Um, you could get a, get a sport director who's from a purely technical background, maybe they've been a coach, for example, and, or an academy director, and they're really not very structured on the management or the negotiation side of things. Um, or you can or you can basically encompass everything. So obviously my background is more technical-based. Um, I've got an academy background. So obviously as a sport director, I pay attention to the academy, developing young players, the pathway for young players, the individual pathway, because it might not be to our first team today. Um, so for example, in Hungary last year, we didn't, we didn't play um, with young players. And uh, our first team this year, we've got more than any other club in the country under 21 Hungarian players in terms of minutes. So that was a, that was something which I wanted to push here. Um, and then I would be involved in day-by-day things in terms of, um, not the details of like, it's not like I'm watching every session in the academy and giving feedback to coaches. Of course, I, I can't do that. I don't have time, even if I wanted to. We've got academy directors, et cetera. Um, but I am still involved in the whole methodology, trying to create one vision for the club so that the academy will play a similar way to the first team, but not only play, train, similar way certain exercises they should know by the time they come to the first team mm. Phys- physical periodization should be similar because we were doing a completely different physical uh, periodization at first team than academy which then creates problems for the players to adapt quickly and easily when they when they come up um just so give, us an example, give, us, give an example of that physical periodization just for, for you know listeners who maybe don't know what viewers who don't understand what that means yeah so so, so basically just so so, so, so there's when it comes to conditioning players, so, so, so let, let's take this objectively and say that what do you want in the first team? You want the players that they don't get injured, that they, that they are you know, well-conditioned so that they can execute everything you want to see from them in terms of the, the tactical plan. And they also have to understand the tactical plan. So you've got to take all of these three aspects and then you've got to try and you know, um, find a way to balance them all in the week. And the difficulty in the balance becomes um, because players can get fatigued. Um, if you, for example, if you go over um, how much you should train on that week, then the player's performance will decrease on the game. It'll also increase the risk of injury, etc. The same if you undercook them in the training, they won't be as well conditioned as they can be. They won't be optimal sharpness on the game. And I'm trying, I'm trying to simplify this obviously quite a lot here. But basically, it's about trying to find the balance between you know how you achieve all of these factors and at what days in the week you do different things. Um, so. There's many different ways you can do it. For example, in Italy, and I worked with an Italian coach uh, later in Hajduk, for example, um, and even with Igor Tudor, who's, who, who worked in Italy, he's, he's worked in you know, three teams in Serie A. Then you do isolated um, running you know, as part of the conditioning. Uh, Conte does it. You know, m- most of the Italian coaches will do that. And they focus a lot on tactical work, whether it's 11, 11v0 is, is huge with Italian coaches. It might be 11v11, you know, shape work, et cetera. Generally, there's conditioning and there's tactics, you know, and that's, um, let's say, in a nutshell, very simplified version of, you know, the Italian methodology. There's other methodologies where everything's with the ball, everything's in a football game, like tactical periodization methodology, which is um, what we've been using here at Hornved. Um, and I, I won't go into all the details of it um, to j- just for time's sake. But basically, so there's different ideas in terms of how you can achieve the balance of the players tactically being prepared and, and physically being prepared and also, you know, not players not getting injured during the mm. game. So philosophically, there's probably no right or wrong way because uh, coaches are winning Champions Leagues using different methods, but you have to choose one and you have to stick to it. And what we find in research is that um, when fitness coaches change, then the, the risk of injuries go up for a player. So 
it's not because it's not because um, that the new way is bad because it's probably also can be successful. It's the change, which is the situation. The body gets used to working a certain mm. way, and um, to achieve progressive overload step. Because basically, the key, the key point is this: if you want to make the players fitter without pushing them in the red zone, which is risk for injury or, or decreased performance, there's there's a very small kind of middle space there, and you need to carefully monitor and increase step by step what they do. So. If on a Tuesday we do, for example, more strength work, on Wednesday we do large space conditioning, Thursday we do, you know, if somebody comes up with a new model, we can't compare it directly, and therefore the risk of an acute or short-term spike in what the players are doing goes up in a certain in, in a certain way, and therefore that means that you, you're more likely to see more injuries, etc. So even in the first team, if you change fitness coach, you, your risk for injuries goes up. So if, you've, if you're training for 10, 15 years the same way in an academy system, and then you come up to a, to a first team, and it's a completely different training idea. It, it just to me, doesn't seem logical why you would have that big difference. So, so mm. one of my jobs as sport director is to create one vision, one identity for the club, and try to align all the staff members um, to working on that one identity. That that's one part of the job. And what about the academy? Did you look at the academy and you know the methodology of the academy and want to change that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, well, look, I think I already inherited, uh, I already inherited the best academy in Hungary. They just weren't playing them in the first team. So what I had to do was to really try and focus on that that pathway between the academy and the first team and also finding partnership clubs, loans, et cetera, et cetera. Second team, how do we use it? What players play there, et cetera. So I probably focus more on, like, let's say that part. Um, of course, there's lots we can improve still and we will improve in the next months in the academy, you know, all the way through the system. But the academy already was doing a good job for Hungary. So we had more national, we have more national youth team players um, playing in the Hungarian national teams than, than any other club. And we have a, we have a um, academy here, which has got a school for, well, I think there's, I think there's around 105 kids sleep here at our academy wow. um, at the training centre. So we've got school, we've got, you know, kitchen, big gym, we've got seven full-size fields. We've got everything we need for an academy to be much more than they have in Croatia in a club, you know, in terms of infrastructure. So the academy had already been doing good work, so I'm not taking any credit for that. Um, but there are things that, that you know, um, I wanted to tweak. What you find in these parts of Europe, similar to Scotland, you know, um, Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, Poland, etc., um, compared with a Croatia, Spain, Portugal, Italy, France, the southern part of Europe, the game here is more direct at the academy level. So you'll see, for example, much more the players, the first chance they get to put the ball behind the opponent, they try and play the direct pass or they try and put the cross in or they try and... and um, you know, I think I think that again, the culture of how you play the game is almost as important as how many hours you played or um, mm. where you played, etc. Because just by playing in a way which is more forces you to be to take the ball under pressure more and develop your technical skills, then that develops better players, individual players, in, in my opinion. So, for example, here in Hungary, too often I think that they're more direct to put the ball behind, which only develops two things. You know, um, the player in midfield you know, how hard they can kick the ball, you know, behind mm. the defence. And that striker, you know, how fast they can run, which, and I'm obviously being facetious because even speed is genetic and it's not, you know, you're not developing that by. Mm. So if, if, for example, you're more patient, and this is what I'm trying to encourage, and you let the opponent sometimes get in a low block, first of all, it means that obviously you can set up your, you know, rest defence and positional structure that if you lose the ball, you can win the ball back in their half. What that means is that, because what happens if the game stretched and we lose the ball, our academy players run all the way back, and then they run all the way up because they try and score, then they run all the way back, and the game just becomes physical. So the players who can run box to box, after 20, 30 minutes, they look better than actually maybe the technically, tactically, the best players. Mm. So 
but when you, when you when you play the game more controlled, then of course then you have to open up. You know the timing of the runs, um, the combination interchange between two or three players, one v one situations become huge. Not only face to face. I'm I'm a big proponent of um, you know everybody talks about one v one as dribbling. Um, which it is, and we all we all love to see, you know, I'd love to have a Ronaldinho, you know, no doubt about that. But 1v1 back to goal for me is, is mm. the most important, actually, um, element in the game because most 1v1 situations in the game are within an opponent on your back. And when you can outplay the opponent when, an op- with, 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 when they're on their back, it's very, very hard to play against. And if I even take that to a first-team level, a coach that you'll know, Michael Beale, um, for example, you know, got a lot of respect for him. And he's one of the few... First team coaches that I've saw who, do, who does a lot of work on that back to goal one v one situation, even with first team players. And when he was at Rangers, I was at Dundee United, um, and actually we, we were the first team to beat Rangers. I think around eighteen months um, in Scotland um, when I was there. And you know, of course, they could have scored goals. There's a lot of luck involved in that. But when you analyse how they play, they played with two number tens. They played a Christmas tree. You know, two number tens inside the pitch. Ryan Kent, who was at Liverpool before. And uh, Hadji's son, um, Yanis Hadji. Um, so they didn't play with winners. The fullbacks went up. The tens came inside the pitch. And even uh, players like Glenn Kamara, etc., Rebo, in the deeper midfield positions, all of them could play, you know, 360 degrees. So, for example, Ryan Kemp, particularly at that time, how do you how do you defend that player? Because if you come out tight to him from behind him, then he he, he he's perfect at going either way, turning mm. you, and you've he's eliminated your player from the game. If you don't go out and press him. Then he allow him to turn, face you up, and he comes at you with giving goes, etc. And you know, it then becomes very hard to, to to go and close down these type of players. And of course, we had to create a structure basically. Where we try to like, we we had tried to screen from the front and block these passing lanes into these players because basically, once they got the ball, you know, they can beat you in different ways. And that ability to outplay one against one uh, with the opponent on the back, and so also, what type of qualities are required for that? Agility. You know, um, that those mo- the balance and movement fundamentals of um, twisting and turning, you know, 180 degrees. I think in a lot of these countries, and in Scotland too, we, and, and in England, I think maybe in many clubs, we think about physical qualities of a player as um, height of the player, strength of the player, if he's got broad shoulders, you know, he's physically good, he's, mm-hmm. how much he can run. You know, we're obsessed now with GPS data, um, you know, how much, you know, high distance sprints, etc. But what about agility? You know, for me, that's one of the most important things for, for, for a quality player. Balance, you know, coordination. And these are things which they teach in Croatia at academies at a young age. They work on proprioception. They work on balance. They work on the movement fundamentals. And they, they look for players who are agile. And um, and I, I think I think those type of players who can change direction quickly, Chave was the best I've ever seen at that. You know, people we don't think of Chave as a 1v1 player because he didn't get the ball like Messi and dribble at them. But he was absolutely a one v one player because if you try to press him, he eliminated you, and then mm. he eliminated the next guy, and then a huge space opens up, and uh, that that's the type of players I would like to develop in the academy with, with a little bit different playing style and so on. Interesting. And what about yourself? What's your own, you know, uh, ambitions in the game? I mean, you've had an amazing career so far. You've worked pretty much all different sorts of levels of the game. What's your ultimate ambition? Well. Um, to, to be honest, I mean, if I, if, I, if you told me at this age that I would be in this position, I would, have, you know, ten years ago, I thought it wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible. Um, I would like to get. I mean, I'd like to work at the highest possible level, you know, and um, and be be at a world class level. So the top level of the game that I can reach, I would like to do that. But also, you know, in football, so as, as you know, you're more experienced than me. Um, you know, sometimes luck plays a factor, timing, 
um, who you know, who gets the job at the right time, etc. Where you end up. So, so I think I don't like to focus too much on things outside of my own control because that can be frustrating. So I just try and do the best job I can do um, here and everywhere that I go. And if I'm successful somewhere, I'm sure somebody else will notice. But, but yeah, I mean, for me, for me, I, I love what I'm doing. I love being in football. I love every part of it. You know, if I was if I was academy director at a big club, I would love it. Being a sporting director is, is a dream job for me. Coaching, I also love. Um, there's there's almost no part of the game I don't I don't enjoy. So um, I'm very happy. Yeah, and what what bit of advice would you have for a young coach who you know or someone involved you know want to be, have a good career in a game like yourself? If you're starting off, if you're starting off, you have to volunteer. That's something I have to say. Have to say that because when, when young coaches come to me, you know, and, and and they don't have any experience, and they immediately expect to get certain levels of jobs, you have to volunteer or for, or just go go for a different career path. You're not going to make it in the pro game in a full time level unless you, unless you're willing to sacrifice a lot um, and sacrifice a lot to the point that you might be crazy because you might get another job somewhere else and be happier for those initial you know four, five, six years. So volunteer. You know, get the experiences in, and then of course you have to network like crazy. And I would say don't don't ask people to don't don't reach out to somebody on LinkedIn and ask them for a job. You know, because people get hundreds of messages a day. You know, things like that. But networking, for example, like so, for example, what you've done with your podcast, you know, is a very smart way to network because number one, you're doing something which is interesting for you. Number two, you're you're generating content, and it's a it's a um, project in itself, but a byproduct of that is that you're getting to meet all these different people and hearing different mm. ideas. And so, for example, of course, if you ever come to Budapest, you know, you'll be invited here and so on. Yeah, and yeah. I think just like a lot of the jobs I got with through people that, that I knew um, came from somebody that I'd met maybe before just because I went to watch a session or I, or, or I asked them a question and that led to a discussion or it led to, and only through genuinely through me trying to learn from them, then they got to know me and then something came up and they're thinking, oh, I like Chris. Let's call him and see if he's available and do something. So, you know, um, football is a lot about being in the right place at the right time. You know, so the way that I think that you can affect that is to be in more places at, at more times than anybody else. And that means you need to put yourself out there, get to know people, speak to them, go and watch sessions, you know, put the petrol in the car. Um, the internet these days means you can speak to people all day. And then I think if you've done both, if you've sacrificed, you've got experience, you, you, you learn and you've got knowledge, and then you're meeting people all the time. Eventually somebody that, because because one thing I, I, it's a really good I concluded the statement. So you know, um, when you're in my job now, you'd be amazed how not easy it is to find top level people for all the positions that you want to fill. And mm. you would think there's thousands of people all want to be. There is thousands of people that want to be in the jobs, but to find the really high caliber people. So if you if you've really put in the work and spent the time and invested in yourself to really be a quality person, and whether that's an individual coach, a scout, an analyst, doesn't matter then when you network with the right people, they will recognize that because they're also looking for quality people. And yeah. then, you know, after that, things will fall into place. Amazing. Chris, unbelievable, mate. Thank you very much. Good luck, pal. Thank you, so. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.